Would you take your Bible and open it with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, as we continue our series in 1 Peter. The founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, had a vision. Let me read it to you. On one of my recent journeys, I gazed from the coach window. I was led into a train of thought concerning the condition of the multitudes around me. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. As they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And as I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor human beings still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of their sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing into, onto the rock, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those who being, whose being was wrapped up in passion and the effort for the lost deliverance. But only a very few on the platform seemed to make their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean. Nearly every one seemed to have forgotten about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that the people did not seem to have any care, that is in an agonizing sense, About the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes. Many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astonishing unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or a lack of knowledge. Because they lived right there in full sight of it and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures was described. I've always said that the occupants of this platform were engulfed. I've already said that that, that they've been engulfed in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were so absorbed day and night in trading, business, and order to make gains, storing up savings in boxes, safes, and the like. Many on the platform spent time amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, 
Others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music or in dressing themselves up in different styles and walking around to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taking up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already been rescued. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom he called who heard his voice and felt that they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him much were in full sympathy with him in the task of his undertaking. Those who worshipped him or who professed to do so were so taken up with their trades and professions, their monies, their savings, their pleasures, their families, their circles, their religions, their arguments about it, their preparation for going to the mankind, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from the wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they didn't heed it. They didn't care. And so the multitude went right on before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed to me even more strange than anything that had got on before in this strange vision. I saw some of the people on the platform whom this wonderful being had called to, wanting them to come and help him in his difficult task of saving these perishing creatures. They were always praying and crying out to him to come and to save them, and to come and to comfort them their own selves. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strengthen them and make them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts about misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters he had written them. Some wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be quite sure that they would never slip off into the ocean. Numbers others wanted him to make them feel quite certain that they would really get off the rock and onto the mainland someday, because as a matter of fact, it was well known that some would walk so carelessly as to lose their footing. So these people used to get up as high on the rock as they could and look towards the mainland where they thought the great being was. They would cry out, come to us, come and help us. And all the while, he, through his spirit, was among the poor, struggling, drowning creatures in the angry deep with his arms around them, trying to drag them out and looking up, oh, so longingly, but all in vain. To those on the rock, crying to them with his voice, all hoarse from calling, come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it plain enough. The sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. That lightning was the gleaming, piercing truth coming from God's throne. The thunder was the distant echoing of the wrath of the justice that was arriving. Those multitudes of people shrieking and struggling and agonizing in the storming sea was the thousands and thousands of poor prostitutes and prostitute makers and drunkards and drunk makers and thieves and liars and blasphemers and ungodly people of every kindred tongue and nation. Oh, what a dark sea it was. And oh, what multitudes of rich and poor, ignorant and educated were there. They were all so unalike in their outward circumstances and conditions, yet all alike in one thing, all sinners before God, all held by and held, holding on to some iniquity, fascinated by some idol, the slaves of some devilish lust, and ruled by the foul fiend from the bottomless pit. 
all alike in one thing? No, all alike in two things. Not only the same in their wickedness, but unless rescued, the same in their sinking, sinking down, down, down to the same terrible doom. That great sheltering rock represented Calvary, the place where Jesus had died for them, and the people on it were those who had been rescued. The way they used their energies, gifts, and times represented the occupations and amusements of those who profess to be saved from sin and hell, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the handful of, the handful of fierce, determined ones who were risking their own lives in saving the perishing were the true so- soldiers of the cross of Jesus. That mighty being who was calling to them from the midst of the angry waters was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, who is still struggling to intercede to save the dying multitude about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music, machinery, and noise of life, calling on the rescue to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the very waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling you to come and help him. Will you go? Look for yourselves. The surging sea of life, crowded with perishing multitudes, rolls up to the very spot on which you stand, leaving the vision. I now come to speak to the fact, a fact that is as real as the Bible, as real as Christ who hung on the cross, as real as the judgment day will be, and as the heaven and hell that will follow it. Does the surging sea look dark and dangerous? Unquestionably, it is so. There is no doubt that the leap for you, as for everyone who takes it, means difficulty and scorn and suffering. For it may mean more than this. It may mean death. He who beckons you from the sea, however, knows what it will mean, and knowingly, he still calls you and bids you to come. You must do it. You cannot hold back. You've enjoyed yourself in Christianity long enough. You've had pleasant feelings, pleasant songs, pleasant meetings, pleasant prospects. There's been much human happiness, much clapping of hands, shouting and praises, very much of heaven on earth. Now then, go to God and tell Him you are prepared as much as necessary to turn your back upon it all. And that you're willing to spend the rest of your days struggling in the midst of these perishing multitudes. Whatever it may cost you, you must do it with the light that is now broken in upon your mind and the call that is now sounding in your ears and the beckoning hands that are before your eyes. You have no alternative to go down among the perishing crowds is your responsibility. Your happiness from now on will consist in sharing their misery. Your ease from now on consist of sharing their pain, your crown and helping them to bear their cross, and your heaven and going into the very jaws of hell to rescue them. Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would unsettle all of us from the safe, comfortable rock and cause us to dive in head first without hesitation to rescue the perishing souls in the sea of sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter talks a lot about being a light in the darkness. 
And as we continue our study in 1 Peter, we're going to pick up in chapter 3 and verse 13, and he gives us some extraordinarily practical tips, instructions, commands to be the light in the darkness and lead people to life and light in Christ. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And Peter is writing this letter to the five churches spread out in northern Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, because they're incurring a great deal of present persecution for being followers of Jesus Christ. And he knows that the full force of the Roman Empire is about to be unleashed upon them in persecution. There's incredible slander. They're saying that there's ancestral relations going on inside that church because everybody's calling each other brother and sister, and it's just weird. They're saying that they're cannibals inside that church because they partake of the Lord's body and blood, and they eat it and drink it. They're twisting and miscommunicating uh, communion and the Lord's Supper. Supper. And they're saying that everybody within the church are troublemakers and they're lawbreakers because we only worship one God. His name is Caesar. And they're professing some other God named Jesus, and that's treason. And they're talking about setting the world on fire. They're vandals. And after Nero did set the world on fire, he blamed it on the Christians, and then the full force of Roman persecution swept upon the Christians. They were burned at the stake, they were quartered, they were sawed in two, they were tied up together, and to mock their baptism, thrown into rivers to be perished. They were thrown to hungry, ravenous uh, lions. They were hung in trees, tied up next to beehives where they were stung to death. And it goes on and on and on. They were dipped in boiling oil and hung on crosses and set aflame to light the paths of Rome as an example of what will happen if you follow this Jesus and if you're committed to this thing called his body at the church. And in preparation of the onslaught of this persecution, Peter is saying, don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. And then from there, he says, how to be light in the darkness. As you watch the news, you know that our culture is becoming increasingly dark. Never before has these words been more practical. How to be light in the darkness. And he gives us some very counterintuitive, countercultural steps, instructions, commands on how to be light in the darkness. And in being the light, we point people to a relationship with Jesus. First step, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. We live in the darkness. And our job isn't to run away from the darkness. Our job is to shine in the darkness. And you say, but it's so, so dark. The darker the night, the brighter we shine. And the first way to ensure that we are bright lights in a dark world is to sanctify Jesus Christ in our hearts in practical terms. This means make sure Jesus is Lord of all of your heart. Make sure Jesus is Lord of all of your life. Because if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at 
all. The word Savior is mentioned twice in the Acts of the Apostles. The word Lord is mentioned 92 times. We come to Jesus just as we are by trusting in His work for us on the cross. In a moment we are born again. His Spirit infuses our heart and we have a new nature. And we are then to follow Him as Lord of all of our heart. Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He doesn't want 98% of our heart and life. He wants 100%. He said, I want you hotter. I want you cold. I don't want you lukewarm. I spew you out of my mouth. Somebody said, let me follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said in Luke 9, let the dead bury their dead. I'm following. I'm leaving now. Follow. I want to be Lord of all. I don't want to be Lord at all. Somebody else said, I'll follow you, but first let me go say bye to my family. And Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I want to be Lord of all or I don't want to be Lord at all. Somebody else said, I want to follow you, but what are the accommodations like? And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I want to be Lord of all or I don't want to be Lord at all. Can you imagine after I officiated a wedding ceremony? To John and Megan. I just made up their names. So if you're named John and Megan, this was a pure coincidence. Um, so I officiated a wedding for John and Megan. They got married. And it was a beautiful wedding. And they left, and you know, everybody was throwing wrasse at them. Or actually, you know, they, it was bird seed. They, they, they unwrap the bird seed and scatter in their hands, just kind of shower the bird seed on them. Except for the one kid. There's always that one kid who doesn't unpack the bird seed and he just throws it at them like the baseball, like a baseball. There's always that kid. So it was a great wedding. We all scattered the rice. They get in the car. They're driving off. They're on the way to the honeymoon. And John says to Megan, I can't wait for this honeymoon. I've been looking so forward to this whole uninterrupted two weeks. And she says, actually, could you just take me home? And he says, well, we're going to the honeymoon. Besides, the contract is not finished with the house. The home's not going to be ready for you know, another couple of weeks. And she says, no, I don't mean that home. I mean back to my parents. He says, what are you talking about? She said, well, I'm glad that we're married, but I want to live with my parents. I want your hands off of my life. But John, if I need you, I'll call you. If I need money, I'll call you. If I need you to do something for me, I'll call you. But other than that, I want your hands off of my life. Is that a marriage? No. And did you know that marriage is the best picture we have of our relationship with Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible gives us many sacraments, if you will, to describe our relationship with Christ. Whether it's baptism or whether it's communion. How we come to Christ. How we follow Christ. How we're new in Christ. But the most graphic sacrament we have of our relationship with Jesus Christ is marriage. Ephesians chapter 5. The husband represents Christ. The bride represents the church, the body of Christ. And as intimate and holistic as that metaphor, that sacrament is, it still pales in comparison to the intimacy and tenderness and the holistic nature that Christ wants in a relationship with us. So you can understand why He doesn't want to be Lord of part of our lives, but he wants to be Lord of all of our lives. It would be like Megan saying to John, John, listen, I love being married, but I'm faithful to you 360 days out of the year. But five days out of the year, I'm going to do what I want to do. Would that hurt John's feelings? Yes. Would that anger John? Yes. Would John go for that? No. Which is why we read in Scripture to sanctify Christ in our heart as Lord. In other words, be sure that He's Lord of all of your life, not 98% of it, 100% of it. Is there anything in your life that you're holding back? Is there anything in your life that's preventing you from following wholeheartedly, 
100% heartedly, anything at all, surrender that to the Lord. It might be a pet sin. It might be a sin everybody knows about. It might be a sin nobody knows about. It might be something that's not a sin, but it's something that you love more than Jesus. We are to surrender wholeheartedly in order to light up and shine like Christ. You know, on Saturday night, we have this service out in Burleson, and it's going really well. We're very encouraged by it. The venue that we're meeting in is Venue 510. And um, interestingly, that was the facilities, the property of the church that I went to since 1990, and I was on staff on for seven or eight years before I started HopeWorks. And it's a big, beautiful facility. And... You know, I remember when the Lord was leading me to start Hope Works. God spoke to me so plainly, so clearly, that it wasn't about would this thing succeed or fail. It was about would I be obedient or disobedient. And my pastor was grooming me to take over his spot and to be the senior pastor over there. And I remember I had to resign. And I went to him and I said, I've, I've, I've got to step down, I've got to resign. And he said, I was kinda, I, I've been expecting you to take, the planes to, to, to take the reins to this place. And I said, I know, but it's not about success or failure, it's about obedience or disobedience. If I don't do this, I'm going to die inside. And he said, I understand, how, how do you think I wound up here? So I spent the next six months fading myself out of all responsibilities before I started HopeWorks. Fading my roommate at that time in to all of my responsibilities before I started HopeWorks. And I remember my very last Sunday there. And everything was just running like clockwork without me. And I was kind of in no man's land. And there's this big ditch on one side of the campus and this big pile of dirt where the new thousand seat auditorium was going to go. And I remember sitting on that pile of dirt at night by myself and just raising my hand and saying, Lord, just lead me. I just want to follow. See, sometimes following Christ is very uncomfortable. Don't mistake being comfortable with God's place for your life. Sometimes following Christ, if not every time, following Christ is very uncomfortable. But stepping out of your comfort zone, ladies and gentlemen, it's where the peace of God is. Don't mistake your comfort zone for God's peace. Seldom do God's uh, peace and your comfort zones go hand in hand. But when you step out of your comfort zone, your heart is flooded with a peace that the world didn't give you. It's not of this world. And you're following Christ and He's so proud of you. And in surrendering your whole heart to Christ, where can you step out of your comfort zone? Where have you become lethargic? Where have you become complacent? Where have you become passive in following Jesus Christ? Where have you become tight-fisted rather than surrendered in terms of following Christ? You will never know the peace of God that passes all understanding until you step out of your comfort zone to follow wholeheartedly. So, Peter would say, it's getting very dark around us and it's about to get even darker let your light shine, be wholehearted. Second, he would go on to say in verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. 
Always be ready to make a defense. That's where we get the word apologetics. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. So many followers of Christ are like the lady, and they asked her, so what do you believe? And she said, I believe what my church believes. And they said, well, what does your church believe? Well, my church believes what I believe. And they said, well, what do you and your church believe? And she said, well, we believe the same thing. In other words, she really has no idea what she believes. And we are to be ready to give a defense For the reason that there is hope within us, which means, first of all, that there should be something different about us. And there will be something different about us if we're wholly surrendered to Christ. The Lord is asking some of you to commit to community. The Lord is asking some of you to lead community and teach community. You know you have shepherding gifts. What's it going to cost you? The Lord is asking some of you to roll up your sleeves and serve in ministry. The Lord is asking some of you to share your faith with your co-workers. The Lord is asking some of you to invite your co-workers to work. The Lord is asking some of you to get accountability for a sin that you haven't been able to kick on your own. When we follow Christ wholeheartedly, we light up and people ask, what's different about us? And when they ask what's different about us, we are to give a reason. And the only way that the Spirit of God is going to prompt a response so that we can give a reason as if we're spending time with Jesus every single morning and walking with him every single day. Jesus told his followers, you're going to be handed over to court, but don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words when it's needed. So we don't worry about what to say or how to say it. We walk with Jesus, and when we need the words, the words will be there with greater insight, wisdom, and authority than we knew we had because we didn't have it. It's all Jesus working through us. And Jesus is working through us when we're surrendered and walking with him every day. It's like somebody asked, how can you say God is real? Because if God is real... At least the God that you say exists, 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Because he would have foreseen it and he would have stopped it. If God is all-powerful, he could stop it. And if God is all-loving, he would stop it. But since he didn't stop it, he's either not all-powerful and he couldn't, or he's not all-good and he didn't, or he doesn't exist. And if you're not walking with Jesus and fully surrendered, you're going to be like, gosh... I don't know, let me, let me give you my pastor's number. You guys talk about that. Y'all go have coffee. But if you're walking with Jesus, say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can't love God if you have to love God. If you can't choose disloyalty, you can't be loyal. If you can't choose not loving God, you can't choose loving God. Love is the highest good, and if God took away our ability to love Him... He would take away the highest good, and if God did away with evil, then he would be doing away with good, and that would be the highest evil. And so God doesn't do away with evil, but he conquers evil, and that's why he, in love he gave up his own life to conquer evil. And now, through his resurrection power, he makes all things work together for the good. And you say something like that, and you're like, I have no idea where that came from. But it came straight from God through you to your friend, and you had a word in due season because your heart was fully surrendered and you were walking with Jesus every day but if you're not, it's not there and you just defer people to your pastor Peter says to shine bright in a dark world you have to be wholeheartedly surrendered to Jesus you have to be ready and to be ready means that we're walking with Jesus every morning 
You have to be wholehearted. You have to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And if you're living wholeheartedly and you're walking with Jesus, they will ask you. There will be something different. But we don't wait for somebody to ask us. We look for opportunities to share our faith. As I mentioned at the vision banquet, which is an awesome vision banquet, by the way. It was so unifying and encouraging. But I, I mentioned that one of, my, one of my heroes, a mentor who I've never met, named Dave Wilkerson. I enjoy his books. I enjoy his sermons. He founded a church in New York. He wrote The Cross and the Switchblade. He led many people out of gangs. And since then, he created Teen Challenge. He's led many people out of bondage and addiction into freedom. Well, he's a very spiritual kind of guy. I mean, he's the kind of, he's passed away since as, as an older man, but he's the kind of guy that ha- always had one foot in, on earth and one foot into heaven. Just a, a, otherworldly. And he was uh, immersing himself in a study of scripture on the glory of God. For three months, he was fasting and praying and immersing himself in a study of the glory of God. Because he believed that the glory of God would rest on somebody so heavily that Jesus would shine through them and people would walk up and ask you about Jesus and you could lead them to Christ. So after completing a three-month intensive fast and prayer and study on the glory of God, he was having breakfast with his family at a restaurant. And there was a waitress who kept looking at him. And he told his kids, she sees the glory of God on me. She sees Jesus in me. She's about to ask me about Jesus. And this lady keeps looking over. And then she starts walking over. And he said, here she comes. She's about to come ask me about Jesus. I know she sees the glory of God on me. And so this lady comes over to Dave Wilkerson and says, "Um, excuse me, sir, may may I ask you a question? And he said, sure, go ahead. And she said, "Uh, are you Hugh Hefner? (laughs) She mistook one of the most righteous guys for one of the most unrighteous guys. A guy whose whole life was devoted to leading people to freedom for a guy whose whole life was devoted to leading people into addiction. So we can't leave it upon the lost to simply come and ask us. We've got to be wholehearted. We've got to be surrendered. We've got to be walking with Jesus. And then we have to look for opportunities to share our testimony and to share Christ and invite people to church. We can't leave it upon them because they're lost. They're in bondage. They're broken. They don't know what they need. But we know that Christ can heal their heart and forgive their sins and give them new and eternal life. Therefore, we've got to be bold. And we have to witness. And we have to testify. So Peter said, to be light in a dark world, be wholehearted, sanctify Christ in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense for everybody who asks you to give an answer for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. With gentleness. Sometimes Christians forget that part. Did you know if you go to Google and you type in, why are Christians so, you know how it gives you the first several options of the most searched for inquiries? Unfortunately, if you type, why are Christians so, it doesn't come up, why are Christians so compassionate? Why are Christians so joyful? Why are Christians so loving? Why are Christians so much like Jesus? It doesn't say that. The most search for inquiries, why are Christians so angry? Why are Christians so arrogant? Why are Christians so hypocritical? Why are Christians so unchristlike? We have to give a response. We have to be bold. We have to share Jesus. And yet Peter says, yet, do it with gentleness and meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is strength under control. The greatest example of meekness is Jesus on the cross. Though he could have called legions to deliver him, he didn't. That's meekness. Strength submitted to his authority, his father. 
Meekness is a stallion submitted to the rider with just a nudge of the reins left and right. We live surrendered to a higher authority and therefore we are gentle to an ungentle world. We are kind in the midst of unkindness. We are water in the midst of fire. Second half of 1 Peter chapter 2 on through this point. Peter leads us to shift our perspective in all aspects of our life. At home, at work, and in the midst of a corrupt government. And he says, at home, shift your perspective. And this is a command from the Lord through the Apostle Peter. Shift your perspective so that you don't view being right. And you don't view having a perfect marriage and perfect family as the ultimate objective, but rather shift your perspective so that you view the opportunity to share Christ as the goal. The opportunity to embody Jesus with hands and feet to your spouse as the highest calling in your marriage. You're like, but even when they don't deserve it? And Peter says, especially when they don't deserve it. In the midst of ungodliness, in home, at home, embody Jesus. And at work, Peter says, shift your perspective so that rather than seeing climbing the ladder and making more money and being well-respected as the ultimate objective at work, shift your perspective so that modeling Christ's gentleness and humility and love is the highest calling in the workplace. You're like, but even when everybody's unchristlike, especially when everybody's unchristlike. And in terms of government and politics, shift your perspective. So that instead of making everybody in your circles believe the way that you believe, make them see Jesus in your life. But even when our government is corrupt, especially when our government is corrupt, that is the highest calling. Sharing Christ and at the same time modeling Christ with meekness and gentleness and love. And those are words, and that's a testimony that an unbelieving world can't deny. All too often, Christians, whether it's through social media or personal encounters, are all too eager to win the argument and lose the audience. Win the argument, but lose the trust, the intimacy, and the tenderness. Win the argument, but lose our testimony. I've been inspired by Billy Graham's life, as I'm sure you have. His autobiography was one of the most influential books I've ever read, besides the Bible, of course. Watching his funeral on Friday gave me a fresh resolve to guard my testimony. And I hope it did you as well. Billy Graham's testimony and legacy shine so bright. And even an unbelieving world says, you know what, something's real about that. Something's authentic about that. And I believe that oftentimes we forget about our testimony. We discard our testimony because we cop out. And we say, hey, don't look to me. Look to Jesus. There's only one perfect one. It's not me. I'll let you down. Don't you put me on a pedestal. I'll let you down. You look to Jesus. I'm saved by grace. I'll defer to Jesus as, a te- as, as an example. And Peter says, no, let your light shine. Model gentleness. And he goes on to say in the very next verse, live in such a way that your conscience is clean and your life is above reproach, 
And even if people slander you and slam you, no sooner will the words come out of their mouth that they're ashamed of their conduct. And the Apostle Paul never said something of, of the like. You don't look at me. You look to Jesus. I'll let you down. He won't let you down. Don't put me on a pedestal. You, you follow Jesus. Are we human? Do we let people down? Yes, of course we do. But let's not run to that cop out. The Apostle Paul said, you want to know what a follower of Christ looks like? Follow me. Will we make mistakes? Of course. But let's be bold in our commitment to follow Christ and to be a light. And when we make mistakes, it's an opportunity to model humility and gentleness to the world around us and confess those mistakes. And that will be so inspiring to people. But we follow Christ. And we live in such a way that we are mindful of our testimony so much so that we say, I know you don't think Jesus is real, but just watch my life for a little bit. And you'll, you'll start believing Jesus is real. Because the world is dark and the world is dying for light. And how are they going to see light if they don't see Jesus through us? So would you stand with me, please? I hope this encouraged you. I hope this challenged you. This encouraged and challenged me. I'll tell you, over the years, I've sort of, I've sort of slid into that cop-out myself. Ah, there's only one perfect one. That's Jesus. I'll let you down. Don't put me on a pedestal. But Peter says, live with such a clear conscience that people believe Jesus is real because your testimony is so honorable. Live that way. Be so different. Be so countercultural. Be so wholeheartedly in love with Jesus. So wholeheartedly following Jesus. Walking with Jesus so that the words are there when you need to testify of Christ and give a response for the hope that is within you. And you do it with gentleness. And you do it with meekness. And you do it with love. And let's pick our testimony back up. Let's pick caring about our testimony back up. And let's dust it off. And let's make decisions at home based upon letting people see Jesus in our testimony. Let's make decisions at work based upon letting people see Jesus in our testimony. Let's make uh, decisions based upon... uh, being in the midst of swirling political rhetoric about letting people see Jesus in our testimony. Because that's more important than winning an argument. Let people see Jesus in us. And then they're going to want what we have. We have a great opportunity as a church family coming up. April 1st, it's Easter Sunday. And it's one of the greatest opportunities to go into the highways and byways and compel people to come in so that Christ's house is full and people come to Christ. So we'll continue on Sunday mornings throughout March just equipping and discipling and building up the saints and encouraging you and challenging you to go out into the highway and byways. Compel people to come in. Don't take no for an answer. And bring them in to hear how much Jesus loves them and how he'll forgive them and save them if they turn their heart to Christ and trust in Him for their salvation. So would you bow your heads with me? I wonder how many of you would say, I want a bright testimony in all aspects of my life. Raise your hand high. All right. Father, you saw those hands. Me too. And so we respond in worship by saying, here we are, Lord. We surrender all. 
There's a story about the offering plate being passed at church, and there's this poor kid on the back row, and he didn't have any shoes, and uh, his clothes are real messed up, and as the offering plate was being passed, people were putting big checks in it, and as the offering plate was getting closer to this little poor kid, he was thinking, gosh, I don't, I don't have anything to put in the offering plate. And so as he was approaching him, he was getting nervous. He's like, I don't have anything to put in the offering plate. And then finally, when the offering plate got to his row, he took it from the usher, and he put it in the middle of the aisle, and he stepped in it. And he said, oh God, this is all I have to offer. Just what I am. That's the greatest offering, your whole heart. So in this response time, offer your whole heart to Christ. What area have you been holding back? What's the 2% you've been holding back? What's the 50% you've been holding back? Surrender it all to Christ. And follow wholeheartedly. And live to let people see Jesus in your testimony. Embrace opportunities to boldly share, but with gentleness and love. So let's respond. The altars are open and let's worship Christ.